to praise the Lord for. And as Elder Patty was saying yesterday, yesterday was really, you know what it was? It was watching the brothers and sisters in Christ putting their faith into action. Taking care of those who couldn't take care of themselves. And Pat's right. I mean, these, these kids are going to get put, have a big smile on their face when they open that box. Things that they probably would never get, plus the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyway, our message. This is not a message the children will stay in service today. This is a message that is not a very popular one. It's a hard one. Matter of fact, when I was preparing it, I was thinking to myself, am I crazy preaching this? Nonetheless, it's God's word and we have to be faithful to his word. We have to. And one of the, one of the, one of the problems preachers always have, and you learn this, is bridging the gap. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 8. We're going to go to verse 13. Last time I spoke, we spoke about the holiness of God. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. But one of the things, how do you bridge the gap when something took place 2,700 years ago? And that's one of the things we have to do. We have to learn how to bridge the gap. How, how do we bridge the gap from Isaiah's day to our day? And how do we respond to that today in the 21st century in this text we're going to read? But this is a hard message. It's hard preaching. Dr. Sproul said hard preaching makes soft hearts. Soft preaching makes hard hearts. We have a lot of soft preaching today, in America especially. Let's give a little background. Isaiah, the last time I spoke, it was the, king, it was the year King Uzziah died and everything was going great for Israel, specifically for Judah. And Isaiah died and now the, the, the nation is in turmoil. What are we going to do? Isaiah, Uzziah, Uzziah, King Uzziah died, what are we going to do? Everything was good, they were prospering. So Isaiah, wanting to get some comfort, goes into the temple. And what does he see? He sees angels flying above the throne. He sees the throne room of God. Actually, he didn't enter the temple, what he thought he was, the physical temple. He entered the temple of God. And he sees angels flying around. And he hears one angel calling to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah didn't say, well, praise you, God, you are holy. Isaiah falls down and says, woe is me, I'm undone. He saw his sinfulness. That's what holiness does. When we see the holiness of God, the first thing we see is our own unworthiness. And he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then right after that happened, 
one of the angels comes and takes a burning coal and touches his mouth. And he says, your sin is atoned for, you're forgiven. And then he hears a voice saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? This is the Lord commissioning Isaiah to go out and tell the Lord's message. Are you a believer today? If you're a believer today, then like Isaiah, you are commissioned by the Lord. So let's stand and read our text. Let's stand and read Isaiah 6, verses 8 through 13. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and the ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We praise you for your word. And we thank you, God, that even though this word may sound discouraging, it really in the end has a lot of life. So open our hearts today to receive what your word says and what the Holy Spirit is telling us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know how many of you like the sun. I like the sun. My wife doesn't. I like the sun. Uh, but the sun has different effects on people. Here's some of the effects it has on people. The sun enhances your mood. Did you know that? In certain uh, being in the sun can make people feel better and have more energy. Sunlight increases the level of serotonin in the brain, which is associated with improved mood. Not surprisingly, serotonin levels are highest in the summer. So it actually enhances your mood. It treats seasonal depression. It relieves stress. It improves sleep. And it's a great source of vitamin D. They say you should... Go out in the sun 15 minutes a day and you'll get your vitamin D. And there's also, that's the ones who use it responsibly. Then the harmful effects of the sun when not used responsibly. Sun damage to the eyes because it could damage the retina. Uh, it could cause heat exhaustion and if heat exhaustion is not treated, it could cause heat stroke. It could cause sunburn. We've all experienced sunburn. And the worst part, and this is the damaging part, it can cause skin cancer. But it could also, and for some people this is worse than the skin cancer, it could cause wrinkles and aging. It shouldn't be the worst part, but for some people. So you can see, for some people the sun can be very beneficial if used appropriately, right? And for some... 
the sun can have bad consequences if unresponsive to its warnings. Well, the gospel is like that. It can be life for some people and death to others. Paul said that in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2nd chapter, verses 15 through 16. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, what he's saying is life to those who respond to it and death to those who are unresponsive to it. Also, the sun hardens clay and the same sun melts wax. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Here's my challenge to you tonight. What I always call the proposition. Will you preach the gospel even if people are unresponsive? Three points that we can learn from Isaiah's life from this text. Point one, you as a believer are commissioned by God to preach his gospel. Point two, you don't compromise God's message. And point three, you will be rejected by most, but God always has a remnant who will believe. So point one, you are commissioned by God to preach the gospel. Let's go Go through verses 8 and 9 again. Isaiah said, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then he said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. So Isaiah received a command to go and give the message of God That the God gave him to a stubborn, willful, rebellious people. Now the word go in Hebrew is what they call in the imperative mood. The imperative mood means it was a command. Means this wasn't a suggestion. Isaiah, if you feel like going and telling my message, go. Now he gave him a command. But here's the difference between the Lord's commands and the dictator's commands. The Lord's commands, first of all, and his commandments are never burdensome. When, when the Lord, who was a loving master, our loving father, gives us a command, it's a pleasure to do it. So he says, go. In other words, Isaiah, go and tell this people what I am about to tell you. It's no wonder why the seraphim angel took the coal, and where did he put it? On his mouth. Isaiah is God's spokesman for God. His sin was atoned for, and now his mouth is purified, and he's able to say exactly what God tells him to say. And he cannot and will not alter his message. He was perfectly obedient with the message God told him to proclaim. What characterized the prophets and saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament was obedience. Noah was an example of obedience, even when God told him to do something that, he, that he didn't even seem to make sense. Steve Green, the Christian singer, told this story. Noah could have been 
the poster child for obedience. But I wonder if Noah ever felt foolish out, of the, out there building a boat out in his backyard. Were there days when he thought about quitting? For Noah, building this boat was a huge step of obedience because there was no water around where he lived and it had never rained. At that point, it never rained. How the earth got watered was a mist came from, from the earth. Could you imagine? God told Noah, go and build an ark. And he gave him the exact measurements. And, and Noah did it exactly. And he preached 120 years about the coming judgment. Could you imagine that? Preaching 120 years about the coming judgment. His commission came directly from the Lord himself. Isaiah was also commissioned directly from God and fulfilled his commission. Well, you and I are commissioned by God to preach the gospel. And we need to proclaim it as exactly as it is written. We need not to compromise. Just before, I was listening to Brother John in the back telling the gospel to someone who came into church. And he was saying the gospel exactly the way God wanted them to say it. He didn't compromise. He told them the truth. In Acts 8, I'm sorry, Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended back to his father, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness is in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, Christ died, rose again, the disciples were forgiven, and now they were going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and were commissioned by Christ himself to be Christ's witnesses. And if you're a believer, the same thing. You trusted in Christ, you received forgiveness, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and now you have the power to go and to be Christ's witnesses. Christ commissioned you to be his witnesses. What or when are you commissioned to proclaim the gospel? As soon as you're converted. The woman at the well in John 4 immediately went and told the people in our town about Jesus. What does that say? You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to go to a, a, um, a hundred Bible classes before you can preach the gospel. The man who Jesus cast out many demons went and immediately to his hometown to testify about Jesus. Immediately. When do you proclaim the gospel? When you immediately understand it and are converted. You're commissioned to give the gospel. It's not a, it's not a time you wait. You could start. And listen, you'll grow in that. As you get older in the Lord, you start growing, you start learning, you start maturing, you start learning to articulate the gospel greater. Point one, you are commissioned by God to preach his gospel. Point two, you don't compromise God's message. We have a lot today that, and listen, we could all be tempted to compromise God's message. You know why? You know why we, 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 we we're tempted to compromise his message? Because we want to make people feel comfortable. Don't compromise his message ever. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's what it's always going to be. 
But for, thus, for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God and the stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So we don't compromise and we tell it exactly the way it is because it's still going to be a stumbling block, as Paul said to the Jews, because they thought righteousness came through obeying the commandments, obeying the law. And it's going to be folly to the Gentile world. Come on, this Jesus dying for your sins on the cross. So, don't ever compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go to verse 9, the second half of verse 9 to verse 12. And this was the message. He said, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. And their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the, pe- and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This was the message Isaiah was to preach. This is certainly not the kind of message that you will hear from the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. Isaiah gives Judah a message, a message from God of judgment. And God the judge was going to what the theologians call judicially harden Judah's already unresponsive heart. Now, people think, Does God actually harden a heart? Did I just read that? I just read that. The people of Judah were very prosperous. Remember I said, King Uzziah, there was a great prosperity going on there. But they were so wrong. They were eternally wrong. God here actually prevents the Israelites from understanding Isaiah's message. And Christians most of the time think this, that the gospel of grace softens people's hearts. But is that always true? Listen to what Dr. Andrew Davis said. He said, it is troubling to people who think God always acts to open blind eyes, soften hardened hearts, and work salvation in everyone to whom he sends a messenger. But clearly this passage teaches the opposite. Sometimes God sends a messenger to harden hearts and to confirm the condemnation of people. And John Calvin said this, God informs Isaiah beforehand that not only will his labor and teaching will be fruitless, but that by his instruction, he will also blind the people so that so as to be the occasion of producing greater insensibility and stubbornness and to the end in their destruction. Dr. John MacArthur, a few years ago, preached a message at the national, I believe it was the national prayer breakfast. And I remember listening to James Dobson on the radio, and he he aired this message. And the message, um, Dr. Dobson said, when he was preaching it, he said, usually when we have these breakfasts, you know, all these major speakers come and, uh, you know, and they give their message. And he said, you know, people get up and go to the bathroom. You know, sometimes people talk. He said, when MacArthur preached this message, he said, you could hear a pin drop. Not one person got up. And it was when God abandons a nation. And he was talking about America. 
that God judged America already. And he said, the reason, and he was basing this on Romans 1. All on Romans 1. And he said, the reason why God abandoned America is because of her insistent sin. See, God's a gracious God. But if you're persisting in sin and unbelief, same thing is going to happen what happened in Isaiah's day. By the way, if any of you should think, well, this, that's the Old Testament. Think again, because Jesus quoted this in his confrontation to the Jewish leaders. And Paul also said the same thing in Romans 11. I'll speak more on that in a little while. And this is what Isaiah was to tell them. Verses 9 and 10. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and the ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, you Israelites are continually hearing and seeing God's word, but you are not understanding the intent of it, nor will you be able to. Instead of listening and responding to the word of God, they would not and could not understand it. Why? Because God judicially hardens their, and I want to underline this word, already hardened hearts, and now they are ripe for judgment. I said, I said this is not going to be an easy message. And I really, seriously, I'm saying this as I'm standing and trying to be honest with you. I really, when I was preparing it, I wanted to say, I can't do this. I can't, because I'm a human being and I have emotions too. I don't want to offend people. But what Brian and I and Pat always talk about is we want to be faithful to God's word. So this is a hard message, yes, but it's the truth. I think Barry Webb says it well in his commentary on Isaiah on these verses. He said, they have chosen arrogance and indifference. They shall have them in full measure and experience their bitter fruits, devastation and exile. Judgment is now inevitable. And that's exactly what happened to Judah. They were devastated. The Babylonians came in and exiled them to Babylon. What happened here? Well, God hardened their hearts. He blinded them. He deafened them and made their hearts dull. You know, sometimes the Bible says it's Satan that blinds the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. Sometimes people harden their own hearts. Acts 7.51 But this text clearly teaches a judicial hardening of hearts by God himself. Their repentance and faith and trust in God is now impossible. Now, Remember one thing. Remember when Jesus walked the earth? Remember how kind and merciful he was? Remember he was doing all these great miracles? And remember the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders said, and when he, there was one time he cast out devils, and the Pharisees looked at him and he says, it's by Satan that he cast out devils. And Jesus said something very astounding. He said, if you blaspheme, if you blaspheme 
the Son of Man, you could be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will need to be forgiven in this life no, the next. When I was a young Christian, that freaked me out. I mean, I thought I was lost forever. You know, I thought I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. But if, by the way, if you're worried about that, proves you didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That was for the hard-hearted who consistently reject the mercy and grace of God. Listen, it's not that God did not do everything to give them a great spiritual heritage and a great spiritual blessing. Israel was likened to a vineyard, a vineyard, which God himself planted, but instead of finding good grapes, what did he find? Well, good grapes, by the way, represent justice and righteousness. He didn't find that. He found sour berries. And that was figurative for the nation of Israel. They were apostate people who rejected the word of God. Listen, God warned them repeatedly. And because of their disobedience, sin, and ungratefulness, he said to them in Deuteronomy 28, 49 to 52, he said, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil. The increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. That's exactly what happened to them in the Babylonian exile. They were stiff and hard. They were stiff-necked and hard-hearted. And now God acts and judges. And as I said before, this is not just the, the Old Testament. The New Testament quotes Isaiah 6 verses 9 to 10 either fully or in part six times. Why? Because it was that important. We, we read it in all four Gospels. It's amazing that we could pass over this, right? You know, here's what we want to do. We want to take the nice scriptures and pass over the, the hard ones. Read the whole thing in context and see what God is saying. But we read it in the Gospels, all four Gospels. We read it in Acts, we read it in Romans. And here is what John, in the Gospel of John, said concerning the stubborn and hard-hearted Jews. And he said this, in John 12, verses 37 to 41. Though he, and he's talking about Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn. And I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. By the way. Isaiah, when I preached the last time, Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8, when he saw the holiness of God, that was Christ's glory he saw. And that's what John is saying here. Isaiah predicted Israel's unbelief, and not only predicted it, but God ordained it for his sovereign purposes. 
We also see this in Paul's letter to the church in Rome about God's judicial hardening of hearts. Romans 11, verses 7 to 8. He said, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was it seeking? It was a seeking. It was seeking. Israel was seeking a righteousness of his own. That he, can, he thought he could gain God's pleasure by their own righteousness, by obeying the law. The elect obtained it. Why? Because it was by faith. But the rest were hardened, as this is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. By the way, do you know how repentance and faith in Christ comes to anyone? If God wills it. So please make no mistake about this. It is God's prerogative to judicially harden a heart and he is still righteous and just. They are just getting what they deserve. Now that's, once again, that goes beyond our human understanding. We don't want to understand that. We, it's very hard for some sin. Just because you don't understand something in the Bible doesn't mean it's not true. I don't understand the born again experience. I don't understand how I could go from death to life. I don't understand in 1978 when I came to faith in Christ how my life radically changed and I didn't even do it. I don't understand that, but I receive it. And I have to receive this the same way. God is sovereign. What the Christian world has done to the sovereignty of God has diminished it. Yep. He, God, what God is doing, he's giving them over to their already hardened hearts. A hardened heart always reflects the willful self-hardening and rejection of God by the sinner. In other words, the sinner is still responsible. Make no mistake about that. For his or her sinful actions and rejection of Jesus Christ. Some people may object to this hardening and say, well, then how can God find fault with anyone if he's hardening their heart? That could be a fair question. Well, Paul addresses that in Romans 9, starting at verse 14 to 21. He said, what shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? He says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on God's will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to, Har- to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, this is Paul speaking, not John Verdi, okay? So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills. And listen, you can't skip over this, folks. You can't. And he hardens whomever he wills. You will say, to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, I want to stop there just for a second. Paul is, what any good preacher should do, is always anticipate what people are thinking. He's anticipating what people are thinking. And, and what they're thinking is, how can he still find fault? And listen, God's not against honest questions, okay? Make no mistake about that. He's not against honest questions. But these questions that Paul was anticipating that the people were thinking, or his readers were thinking, 
was they want to justify their sin and continue in their unbelief. So he says, why does he soon find fault? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this is Paul's response to them. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Here's the way I like to look at it. All of mankind were born in sin, were on our way to hell. The moment we were born because of sin. But God in his infinite mercy chose a remnant. And that's called the bride of Christ. That's called the church. And they're going to be married to Christ. That's, by the way, the church, you, if you're a born again believer, you are a gift to Christ from God the Father. You're his bride. I'm his bride. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Let's continue now with verses 11 and 12. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So why did Isaiah ask this question? Well, like Moses, who asked that his name be blotted out of the book of life because of his love for the Jewish nation, Paul, who had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart, wished he could be accursed for the sake of his fellow Israelites, and Jesus, who wept over Jerusalem because they rejected him, their only means of salvation, Isaiah has this emotional cry. How long should he preach this message? How long will this callous indifference continue? You know why? He deeply cared for the Jews. His fellow Jews, he deeply cared. We need to deeply care about lost souls. You know, Brian said this before, and I agree with him. No one has the right ever have the right to tell anybody about hell or judgment unless it brings tears to their eyes. Isaiah cared. But at the same time, Isaiah could have been frustrated at the Israelites' continuous rebellion and lack of concern for the holiness and glory of God. And you guys know very well, if you've been a Christian any length of time and have shared the gospel, it can be very frustrating when people reject the truth, when people have no concern for the glory of God. As Christians, that bothers us. But anyway, the Lord answered Isaiah that he is to continue preaching until the judgment is done. The cities lie in ruins and the land is desolate and empty as they are exiled into Babylon. After the exile, that's exactly what happened. The city of Jerusalem was in ruins. The people were gone under the powerful leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar II. You see, Isaiah obeyed God and continued to proclaim the message until the devastation of Jerusalem. Just what God said. So, you ought to proclaim his gospel until death, no matter how people respond. We recently went to a memorial of a dear brother who died. This man couldn't tell enough people about Jesus. No matter how they responded, he was going to tell people about Jesus. I remember we were together and I asked him, if you wouldn't mind coming with me to my father's house, just for a few minutes, we probably, I probably had to help my father with something. Well, we went there and we went probably not there more than five minutes and he started telling my father about Jesus. 
And then he prayed with my father. Well, just before he died last year, his wife told us that he had said he had one regret, that he didn't lead more people to Christ. And as Christians, that needs to be our attitude, to want to proclaim the gospel, whether or not people receive it or reject it. Again, you ought to proclaim his gospel until death, no matter how people respond. Recapping point one, you are commissioned by God to preach his gospel. Point two, you don't compromise God's message. And point three, the final point, you're going to be rejected by most. But take heart, God always has a remnant who will believe. Let's read verse 13 again. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now you and I have no right to take a message of God and soften it and change it as not to be offensive. But God has all the right in the world to sweeten the pot. Because God always brings hope. Even though he gives warning and judgment, he brings hope. And verse 13 gives the reader a glimmer of light and hope. Now verse 13 is a very difficult verse to interpret as per all the scholars and theologians. But I think most agree that when Isaiah says a tenth remain in it, it's talking about a remnant of the people who would remain in Judah. God always has a remnant of people who believe because of his covenant promise with Abraham. And these people who are the remnant will obey and trust him. And Isaiah compares this tent or remnant to a terebinth or an oak tree. So probably after further judgment, like these two trees, after they are cut down and a stump remains, which still has life in it, so this remnant of people will survive and be God's people. The stump still had life in it, God's people. The remnant still have life in it, in them. This remnant is the Holy Seed, which, which is the stump of Israel, which will grow and thrive under God's hand. Now Isaiah 37, 31 says, And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. You see, God's elect in Judah were going to survive, and they were going to bear good fruit. And that fruit was going to last all the way until the Messiah comes. They were going to proclaim and There was going to be people that were going to believe their message. And so on and so forth. All the way until Messiah comes. Listen to Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You see, God struck down the Assyrians never to grow again. Like a tree stump with no life in it. Judah, on the other hand, is struck down, but still has life in her. Like a tree, after it's cut down, life emerges from it. It begins to grow shoots. shoots. Now, I had a, a big tree in the backyard. This is a point of contention between me and Aunt Diana, because Aunt Diana lives next door to us. So when we had this big, it was a beautiful tree in the backyard, but it was causing me nothing but grief. All it was was work for me. I had to constantly clean and a lot of mold because of the shade constantly. Anyway, we had to cut down. And Diana was still not forgiving me for that. But we had to cut down and there was a stump left. Now, we had 
after, this, after the tree was cut down by the guy who, who was a tree cutter, we had to call in another guy. He was a stump grinder. Because if he didn't grind the stump all the way down, shoots would grow out of it. And that's what's happening here. You see, Isaiah likened the shoot and the stump, first of all, to Jesse. Who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of King David. King David, whose line the messianic king was to come. Okay, so listen to this. The only reason there was a remnant to stump the holy seed, as we just read, in Isaiah's day, was because of the shoot that grew out of the stump of Jesse, who was Jesus Christ, who was born approximately 700 years later, suffered and died, rose again for their sins, and made them a holy seed. That's why Isaiah could say in chapter 6, a holy seed, a remnant is left. No one is holy apart from Christ's atoning work on the cross. Old Testament and New Testament. People say, well, how did the New Testament get saved? I mean, the Old Testament get saved. The same way we get saved. Here's the cross, right? There's the cross. The Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints. One looks forward, the other one looks back. They looked forward to the coming Messiah. We look back. The Messiah came. God's remnant in Isaiah 6 is because the coming Messiah would pay for their sins, soften their hearts, and make them holy. And listen, take a deep breath. There's a day coming when there will be no more hardened hearts. In the Messianic kingdom, it will be just the opposite. Isaiah tells us of that day. He says, the eyes of those who will see will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. So, let me conclude here and bring some application. Israel, well, would you say please end soon? Let's get, get this all with. <laughs> That's my wife. I could talk to her like that. I know. So Isaiah was chosen by God to be a holy nation, a light to the surrounding nations, but they failed miserably. We know that. They became corrupt nation and apostate nation filled with idolatry. We know that. So God judicially, after repeated warnings, hardens their already hardened hearts. But in that corrupt nation, God had a righteous remnant who was purified by his grace. They, like Isaiah, can go out and preach a message of hope. And you might say, but this is about judgment. And the text is, really, basically. But when we get to verse 13, there's a great ray of hope. Plus, if you read all of Isaiah, I don't know how many of you have read all of Isaiah. It's a fantastic book. I would recommend 66 chapters. It's, it's the gospel of the Old Testament. He weaves in and out of judgment and grace. Judgment Passages like Isaiah 53, the suffering Messiah. I mean, read it. Read it. You will be blessed by it. God, throughout his word, always gives hope. The Old Testament saints always proclaimed hope. We have the same opportunity as the Old Testament righteous remnant had, and even greater because of the finished work on the cross and the resurrection to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Most will reject it, but a remnant will believe. Now, I'm saved 41 years. 
I could say, for the most part, most of the people I spoke the gospel to have rejected it. But God always gave me a remnant. Always have a remnant. I look back and I say, thank you, Lord. Because you could become discouraged. Matter of fact, Dr. John Oswald said, those who reject God's holy ways and refuse to serve the king must eventually confess their sins or be hardened to sin so that judgment can be accomplished. You are called by God to be Christ's witness. Don't ever compromise his message. And remember, you're not responsible for people's responses. But at times you may see, as I just said, the sweet fruit of salvation. Be encouraged. God always has a remnant. And and listen, he's going to reward your faithfulness. When you know you're going out there and you're going to speak the gospel of life to people and some are going to willfully reject it, be faithful. God will reward that faithfulness. But just remember, just as they rejected Christ, they will reject you. Dr. Lawrence Richard said... Let's not be discouraged in ministry, even when the results are truly discouraged. Discouraging. You know, Pastor Brian, uh, Elder Patty, and myself, when we have elders meetings, sometimes we talk about the discouragement in ministry. But we're always encouraged. We're always encouraged at the end, because we know God is doing something. And before I conclude, let me answer the question that may be going through some minds here tonight. And that question is, does God... Harden a Christian's heart. Well, when it comes to the judicial hardening that is spoken of in the Bible, I believe the answer is no. Based on Romans 9 and other passages, I will. Now, all Christians, all of us at times can have callous hearts, and, and, but we hate that we have that. A truly hardened-hearted person will never feel remorse for his or her hard heart. Number one, they'll never feel remorse. Like the one who commits blasphemy will never say, oh, did I commit it? A genuine believer hates and repents of their calloused, cold heart. God will never, ever, and I want to encourage you with this tonight, will never, ever let his child continue in a state of hardness. Paul told the Philippian church, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Praise God for his infinite infinite mercy and grace. I'm going to ask the ushers to get ready for communion and Marty to get ready to lead us in song.